Morning church, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, your personal copy of the Word of God. How blessed we are to have a Bible, huh? In our own language. I'm willing to bet most of you have multiple Bibles. Multiple Bibles. Unprecedented time in the history of the world. Multiple copies of the Word of God at your fingertips. We are blessed indeed. We are in Matthew chapter 26. We're looking this morning at verses 47 to 56, picking up from where we left off last time. As we were looking together last time at verses 36 to 46, we attempted to enter into the anguish of the Lord Jesus Christ there in the garden at Gethsemane as he wrestled in prayer with his father about the work that he needed to do. And there, as a result of that wrestling, Jesus gained mastery over his humanity And in that moment in time, was in dread of the terrible reality of what lay before him. That he was to take upon himself the sin of his people for all time. That he was to drink the wrath of the cup of the cup of the wrath of God and to drink it dry. He came out of that garden, submitted to the Father's will, ready to accomplish my redemption and yours. All praise, glory, and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the narrative before us, beginning in verse 47, really uh, stands in such contrast to what we looked at last week. Last week was the agony of the garden. This week, Jesus comes forth from that garden and and no more wrestling. In fact, he comes forth victorious. He comes forth in strength and power. He comes forth in an incredible display of his sovereignty and immediately takes control of the circumstances. And from this point out, the the narrative of the Gospels will, will show us Christ victorious in every single aspect. He will rule over every single detail of what lies before him. Complete command of the situation by which he gives his life a ransom for many. So this morning in verses 47 to 56, there are three specific ways that that Jesus demonstrates his complete control over the circumstances. In the time allotted to us this morning, I'd like to look at them with you. So number one, number one, Jesus dominates the crowd. Jesus dominates the crowd. The scene, uh, as it is given to us in in the four Gospels, and they all add something to the account, and by looking at all of them, we get a fuller picture of the events of that night were chaotic. It was a chaotic time. 
It was a, a crowd, a multitude. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, that is, as he strode forth from the garden, right? And in verse 46, and said, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at, is at hand. As he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. We're told by, uh, by uh, Mark and Luke that, that it was a multitude, a crowd, a multitude. John tells us in his gospel that, that it included a Roman cohort. So it gives you sort of an inkling of the size of the crowd we're talking about. A Roman cohort, if it was fully staffed, would be 600 soldiers. So whether it was a full Roman cohort of 600 soldiers or whether it was just a a representation from a a cohort, John reports it as a cohort. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they talk about it as a crowd. They talk about it as a multitude. We're told by Luke that it included some of the chief priests and, and elders. Matthew here says it's a crowd sent by the chief priests and elders. And so we're to understand that as a crowd dispatched by or a multitude dispatched by the religious leadership of the nation, but also included representatives of that, of that leadership. So it's a very large group. And they're coming again, John tells us, John 18, in his account of it, he tells us they're carrying lights, they're carrying torches. They come there to the garden because they expect to search for Jesus in that olive garden. And they expect that perhaps he'll be hiding somewhere in the garden, and they don't want to miss him. So they come with a search party. In fact, they, they come with military precision. This is not a mob. This is not a mob. This is, in fact, a military operation. It is, it is done with precision. It has been planned to go down just like this. Beloved, just think about it with me for a minute. How do you get together a cohort of Roman soldiers? How do you gather the uh, temple police... How do you gather together the, some of the chief priests and, and scribes and elders of the people without advanced planning in the middle of the night? You can't exactly call them all up on their cell phone, send them a group text. This thing has been set up ahead of time. This thing has been set up ever since uh, Judas went to the chief priests on Tuesday evening to offer to turn over Christ to them, to betray Christ to them. The plan has been developing from that time po- forward. And so the, the crowd, the soldiers, and that's what I want to focus on, the soldiers have been, as it were, on high alert. They are waiting the signal. They are waiting for the signal. Besides that, just, again, logically, Pilate himself has to know what's going down. In order to, to dispatch 600 Roman soldiers, again, middle of the night, after midnight by this time, in order to dispatch 600 Roman soldiers, you need to talk to their commanding officer. He needs to give you permission. And so Pilate is aware. He has been brought in on this situation. The leadership of the nation has gone to him ahead of time and set it up and told them, we're going, to, we're going to be arresting this guy and we're going to bring him to you. That, by the way, is also why Pilate is ready to receive them in the early hours of the morning. Beyond that, it probably accounts for why Pilate's wife 
according to uh, chapter 27 here of Matthew and verse 19, why his wife has this terrible dream the night on that night. Matthew 27 verse 19, while he was sitting uh, on the judgment seat, that is Pilate, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Likely, Pilate had informed his wife that this thing's going down. And so that very night, while they are there to arrest Jesus, she's having a horrible dream. And she sends Pilate a message later and says, don't do this. Don't do this. So this thing has been set up ahead of time. It's a well-planned military operation to take him down. And Jesus is hopelessly outnumbered. He is hopelessly outnumbered. I mean, it would be very easy to just see him as a victim here, right? The, the weight of the political religious system of the, of the nation has been arrayed against him. And so it would be very, very easy to see him as just a victim of the whole thing that is going to sweep him along. And in fact, uh, uh, many unbelieving theologians would paint it to you in exactly that way. That Jesus was, uh, had a Messiah complex and, uh, and he got himself in over his head and he just got swept along by circumstances and he ended up crucified. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is in complete control of every aspect of this. And so, although it is all arrayed against him, he is dominating the entire situation. I'm going to turn you um, over to uh, John 18. It's worth reading to bring alongside this. And just to help you get a little bit of a a color on this, this reality that Jesus is not a victim here. He's not a victim at all. So John 18, let's, let's go there and pick up a little, a little bit of color. Verse 1, John 18. Now, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. That's the way John handles the time in Gethsemane. It, it's for John's purposes that the, the agony and the passion of the garden are not germane to, to the narrative. And so he passes over that, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us the account of that. Verse 2, Now Jesus, or Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort... And officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. I am. Your text says, I am he. I want you to notice the he is in italics or should be. Because it's implied, it is not stated. I am, he says. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing there, standing with them. So when he, that is Jesus, said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Stop right there. This is a cohort of Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers were very, very well trained. They were the finest infantry of the ancient world. They know how to take someone down. 
particularly a Nazarene carpenter. And so they come there prepared, right? They've got swords, they've got clubs, they've got lanterns, they've got torches. They are ready for whatever it takes to take him down. And they say, right? Uh, Or Jesus actually commanding the situation says to them, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene, right? That's they're reading the orders. Jesus the Nazarene. And he says, I am. The divine name. I am. The name from the bush in Genesis. I am. Like that, 600 Roman soldiers flat on their backs. The, 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 the temple guard laid flat. The chief priests and, and elders of the people laid flat. Judas laid flat. Laid flat. They fell, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, I guess probably as they were crawling back up from their knees, he therefore again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. You know, orders. Just read the orders. He answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. I lost not one. Back to Matthew. Matthew, of course, skips over the account of Jesus leveling the crowd. He says it's Judas, one of the twelve, accompanied by the crowd. So after they have crawled back from their hands and knees and gotten back on their feet, Matthew says, verse 48, Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, Whoever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. That was the sign. That was what had been previously arranged. You remember, Judas had gone to the chief priests. He had said to them, what will you give me to betray him? What will you give me? In other words, what will you pay me to lead you to the right place at the right time where you can arrest him without provoking the crowds? This is the Passover. They desperately want to seize him. They desperately want to execute him. But they are terribly afraid of what the crowd reaction will be. And so what Judas does is come to them and says, Listen, how much will you pay me to take you to him at the right time and in the right place? And I'll give you the right sign so that you know exactly who to arrest without minimal possibility of this thing spinning out of control. 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. Now the time has come. It's under the cover of darkness. Jesus is alone with his disciples there in the garden that, that Judas knew he would be at. I mean, as soon as Judas and the, and the soldiers arrived at the upper room and they figured out Jesus wasn't there, they didn't take him too long to go, okay, if he's not there, then I know where he'll be. And so they lead him there. 
And it's at this point that Judas fulfills his bargain with the devil. Now, why the kiss? Why the kiss? Well, this is the days before digital cameras. So there's no pictures. No photography. No wanted poster. Jesus would not necessarily be known by sight. I mean, to those who were following him, perhaps, the closer they followed him, certainly the the more they would be able to identify him by sight. But for the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, they don't know who he is. I mean, generally aware, yeah. But to pick him out of a crowd at night? Temple guard? Perhaps some of the same things. So who is it we're going to arrest? I think it also speaks of the likelihood that Jesus was a very ordinary-looking man. Just a common Jewish, first-century Jewish man. Not taller than the rest. Not, not, you know, featured in such a way that makes him stand out from a crowd. This is a man whom they are going to need help in identifying. So that's exactly what Judas is going to do. He's going to give them the help. I will provide the unmistakable identification. That's what you're paying me for. I'll take you there at the right time. I will unmistakably identify the right man, and you take him down. After all, it would be a disaster if you arrest the wrong guy. So Jesus arranges a sign. The sign is the kiss. Whomever I kiss, verse 48, he is the one, sees him. Now, he would have kissed Jesus likely on the cheek. He likely would have kissed him on the cheek. It would have been a a sign, a a feigned sign, a deceitful sign, but, but a sign of affection. It would have been the sign of affection. Culturally, you know, we don't live in a kissing society, but culturally, uh, that was a kissing world. So people kissed each other different ways. So a slave would, uh, for example, kiss his master's hand. Maybe the back of the hand, uh, if they were more intimate with the master, maybe the palm of the hand. If it was, uh, if it was uh, wanting to express their, their uh, devotion to their master, they might actually kiss the hem of his garment. Fall flat and kiss the hem of his garment. If you were more uh, familiar with each other and more equal in terms of status, then, then you would kiss them on the cheek. So there would be an exchange of kisses on the cheek. But interesting, a disciple would never kiss their teacher first. Never. That would be disrespectful because you're really not equals. If, if, your, if your rabbi, if your, if your teacher were to kiss you first, you could return the kiss. But for you to go and to initiate the kiss would be a culturally disrespectful thing to do. So this whole deal is, is just wrong at so many levels. Verse 49. 
Immediately, and we'd have to say immediately after he got himself up out of the dirt, Jesus went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, why he chose the kiss, I don't think we'll ever know. I don't think we'll ever know. I mean, maybe in his own twisted logic, he was trying to keep up the pretense of loyalty or something. I don't know. It is interesting, I think, that he calls out to Jesus as rabbi. Notice that, verse 49. He doesn't use the word Lord, which the the other disciples are are in the habit of using for him. Instead, I I think he can't bring himself to say Lord. So he, he calls to him as rabbi teacher, and then proceeds to kiss him. Interestingly here, the, the Greek verb is a very, it's an intensified form of the Greek verb for, for kiss. And so it, it implies that it was not just a peck on the cheek, but rather kind of a prolonged kiss. A prolonged kiss. Something that uh, might denote deep affection, actually. I think it gives us a, a kind of an insight into into what's going on in the heart of Judas. He is so sold out at this point. He is, his soul is so black, so dark. He is so given over to wickedness that as he brings about this heinous deed, he uses what should be a sign of affection and he turns it into the means by which he betrays his master. And not only that, but, but, but he sort of lingers in that. Again, it would be easy to see Jesus as a victim here. A victim of Judas' treachery. But Matthew won't let you see it that way. Notice verse 50. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. The, the, the word translated friend here, um, companion. Maybe that's a good one. Companion or or comrade. That's the idea. Companion, do what you have come for. Jesus is giving him permission. In fact, I would say beyond giving him permission, he is commanding him to do the dirty deed. Do it. Do it. They have been companions. Right? Notice verse 47. Judas is identified as one of the... One of the twelve. This same Judas Jesus has pled with and warned repeatedly over the last several years. Even that night at the table, before before Judas got up and left to, to go get the authorities, Jesus was still in that moment really still pleading with Judas. Judas' heart was so hard in wickedness. He was so aligned with the schemes of the devil. When he comes, when Jesus just commands him as a sovereign and says, do what you have come to do. Do it. The, um, the King James, the New King James, actually translate this as a question. If you have a New King James, you might see that. A friend, why have you come? I don't think that's a good translation. I don't think that's what's going on here. 
I don't think he's, I don't think Jesus is trying to figure out, Judas, what are you doing? Why are you here? What's this kiss all about? No, I don't think so at all. I think it's just the opposite. I think as a sovereign, Jesus is commanding Judas, get on with your dastardly deed. Do it. Do it. Jesus is in full control here, beloved. He is in full control, and he demonstrates it by dominating the crowd. Secondly, he demonstrates it by diffusing the situation. Verses 51 to 54. He does it by diffusing the situation. Behold, Matthew says, check it out, pay attention. One of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, we're thankful for John, who lets us know that it was Peter. And John also lets lets us know that it was Malchus, was the name of the slave of the high priest. Thank you, John. Gives us some detail. It's possible that Malchus was sent there by the high priest himself, possibly, maybe even probably, Annas. And the reason I say that is because that's when Jesus is arrested. That's where he's taken first. So even though Annas is not serving as high priest that year, Caiaphas is. Annas is still the wicked power behind the throne. So I think Malchus is probably there, you know, making sure the operation goes down the way the high priest wants it to go down. And here's Peter. He draws out a sword, a machaira. It's a a short sword, single-edged so don't think of it as, a, as the, the, you know, the Roman sword. This, is a, this could actually be a large knife or a short sword, maybe eh, 18 inches at the most, single blade. They've got a couple of them, Luke tells us. And here's Peter. He pulls it out and he takes a hack. And he misses what he's aiming for, I think, which is probably not Malchus's ear, right? His right ear, which... We're told. Instead, he's aiming for the thing that holds the ears, right? Let's take the whole thing off. Malchus ducks. Peter gets his ear. Again, I mean, from Peter's point of view, right, Jesus had just leveled the whole bunch of them. So, eh, it looks like the odds are decent. Good old impulsive Peter... But Jesus brings an end to the whole situation. He brings an end to the entire situation. In fact, we're told by Luke that uh, Jesus heals Malchus's ear. He basically, and it says his ear was severed. So I'm kind of thinking that he basically gives him a new ear. Right then and there. Just, you know, like, no harm, no foul. I think it's likely, by the way, that this uh, contributes to Peter not being arrested. I mean, it's normally not a good idea to, to when there's an arrest warrant out, you know, and, and, and it hasn't got your name on it, to, um, you know, draw a weapon and start hacking away at the arresting authorities. They, don't, they take a dim view of such things. So I think, I think Jesus is, is diffusing this entire situation here. By, by restoring Malchus's ear. Probably happened so fast that people are going, what happened? Right? The guy in the back of the line, he didn't see it. 
Jesus then says, turns to Peter, verse 52, and he says to him, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. You know, Peter's kind of a desperate times call for desperate measures. That's his approach, right? Let me add him. Jesus rebukes this notion. He rebukes the idea that violence can ever advance the cause of Christ. That is not how the cause of Christ is advanced. It's not one at the point of a sword, at the, at the edge of a blade. Violent op- opposition to the government is not the way to advance the gospel. Jesus himself will say before Pilate over in John 18 and verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world, meaning that my kingdom doesn't come in the same way that all the other kingdoms of the world come, right? If it were, my disciples would be here fighting to deliver me, but they are not here fighting to deliver me because that's not how the kingdom of God comes. It's not that the kingdom of God is not a physical reality. It is. It's just it doesn't arise through normal human means which is the sword. I think it's also uh, true here when he says, uh, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. I don't think he's just, you know, sort of uh, coining a proverb or, or, or reciting a proverb or something. I think it's actually a reference to the, to the reality of Genesis 9 and verse 6. Where Jesus, or excuse me, where, where Moses says there, or is told by God, that the, that the right of execution, capital punishment, belongs to the government. And so, in fact, Paul in, in Romans 13, 4, speaks of the, of the, that the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. And he's basically saying is, is listen, if you, if you find yourself uh, or get yourself in a position of violent opposition to the government in the advancement of the gospel, you will end up on the wrong side of things and you will receive a just execution. I think the church has always understood this historically. That the church does not take up arms when persecuted. The church does not take up arms when persecuted. Beyond that, Jesus says, it's, it's kind of foolish, Peter, verse 53. Do you not think I can appeal to my father and that he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I mean, Peter, honestly. I mean, I just laid them all flat with, the, with just telling them who I really am, revealing something of who I am. And if that weren't enough, right, all I need to do is ask, and, and my father will place at my disposal 12, more than 12 legions of angels. A, a Roman legion, fully outfitted, would be 6,000 soldiers. All I got to do is ask, Peter, and more than 12,000, excuse me, more than 72,000 angels will be put at my disposal to defend me. By the way, 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, one angel destroyed 185,000 Assyrian warriors in a night. So you kind of get an idea. You know, the odds really aren't all that uh, stacked against me. Peter, I'm, I'm, I've got this. I'm in control of this thing. Every single aspect of it. It's, it's moving forward according to the sovereign plan of God. 
Peter, I have access to unlimited power, but I am voluntarily choosing not to exercise it on my own behalf. Why? Why? Verse 54. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? Why, Peter, will I not defend myself? Why will I not stop this travesty from going down? The answer is simply this. The scriptures foretell it this way. The scriptures foretell it this way. To do anything else would be to violate the prophetic plan of God. And that cannot happen. So the scriptures must be fulfilled. Which scriptures? Well, certainly Isaiah 53. Beyond that, certainly things like Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trust, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55, verses 12 to 14. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. It must be fulfilled. Do it. Do it, Judas. Jesus dominates the crowd. Jesus diffuses the situation third. Finally, Jesus destroys their pretense. Jesus destroys their pretense. Verses 55 and 56. At the time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? And you could put in insurrectionist, if you like, or, or even terrorist would capture the, the idea behind that. Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Jesus says, listen, the whole, this whole situation, this whole arrangement here defies logic, defies justice. It won't stand up to, to scrutiny, the way this whole thing's going down. Jesus, Jesus reminds them. He speaks to the crowd. He, he tells the crowd, and that would include the Roman soldiers. That would include the temple guard. That would include the representatives of the chief priests. That would include the chief priests who were there themselves. He says, listen, this entire operation is, is wicked. You're coming to arrest me with the pretense that, that I'm an insurrectionist. I'm a threat to Rome. And you're, and you're coming under cover of darkness. And, you, and you're carrying this thing out like I'm some sort of a warlord. It's ridiculous. I have taught openly in your midst these last Days I have been in the temple from, from morning until night. And I've been performing miracles and I've been teaching and, and I've done it in broad daylight and all can evaluate my life and my ministry. That's not the way an insurrectionist operates. Beyond that, I, I, it's not like I've been hard to find. You know, criminals, uh, they don't normally hide out in plain view. And here I am. I have been there in the temple. Right? Every day, I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. You could have arrested me at any point in time, and you didn't. 
You didn't. And the fact that you did not do so proves that you are not really interested in justice. This is not about justice. This is about getting rid of the Messiah. This is about killing your enemy. This thing stinks from beginning to end. One commentator says this, says, quote, they wanted simply to get him out of the way and were prepared to stoop to any means to bring it about. If they had been honest in what they were doing, they would have proceeded against him publicly. We're beholding to Luke's gospel, Luke 22 and verse 53. Jesus says, while I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. This whole operation is under the power of darkness. Not nightfall, spiritual darkness, wickedness. Jesus lets them know the real motives for what you're doing, they're clear. Anyone can tell, anyone who takes the time to honestly reflect upon what's going on here. It belongs to darkness. But beloved, even in that, even in this great evil, the scriptures must be fulfilled. Look at verse 56. But all this has taken place, why? To fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. To fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was arrested like, a, like an insurrectionist. He was numbered among those transgressors. The scriptures prophetically said. Matthew ends the account here and... And he says, then all the disciples, all those who had pledged their love and loyalty, all those who said, I'd die before I would betray you, before I would turn from the cause, left him and fled. Left him and fled. Beloved, a couple of things stand out for me just from this. I worked through this account this week. I mean, certainly I don't think we can miss the the reality of Jesus' absolute and total control over this entire situation. He is not a victim. He He wasn't taken against his will. He wasn't dragged off kicking and screaming. Listen, yes, last week... There was an intense time of, of passionate wrestling with his father in prayer. And, 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 and he was in agony and he, he asked if there's any other way. Yes. But his soul was settled through that time with the father. And he came out of that prayer strengthened, ready to face the task. And from that point forward and through the rest of this book... We are going to see that that he is absolutely king and sovereignly in control of everything. 
This thing could have been a disaster. And it operates exactly how God has planned it. Exactly how God has planned it. Beyond that, I'm struck by Jesus' reliance upon and commitment to the Scriptures. The inerrant and authoritative written Word of God. In the midst of this, he, he is persuaded that the Scriptures, which are the expression of the sovereign will of God, must come true. They will come true. And we will see that over and over again as this thing works out over the next few hours. Again and again, it will, it will be told to us, and the Scriptures were fulfilled, and the Scriptures were fulfilled, and the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Both of these are evidences of Jesus' complete control. So, do you trust his complete control? I mean, I think that's definitely a question you've got to ask yourselves. Do I trust his complete control over my life, the circumstances I find myself in? I mean, they, they, they're nothing. They're, they're, a, they're a mist. They're a vapor in comparison to what's going on here. And yet, how often I lose sight. Jesus is absolutely committed and in full sovereign control. May God grant us a measure of faith that we might be committed to. Father, thank you for the account of this, of the arrest. Thank you for the, just the signs, the symbols, the, the statements, the, the repeated emphasis that, that Jesus is not a victim here, but he is absolutely, totally, sovereignly in control. The plan is working out exactly as it has been laid down from long ago in the scriptures, even including the actions of wicked men. The independent uh, decisions of third parties is all part of your plan, and every bit of it works out. So our Father, in our lives, the reality is the same. Every single detail, the actions of third parties towards us, some of which are wicked and despicable, all work out according to your sovereign plan. Let us see with eyes of faith. Let our hearts be secure in the scriptures. Let us be able to say, thy will be done. Help us to become more like Jesus. We ask for his sake. Amen.